0: Now, Rock Talk with Mitch
1: LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone is, of course, the one and only Alan Niven, or Sir Alan Niven, as we have decided to call you. Bonjour, monsieur. How are you? I'm
2: very good. How are you?
1: I am uh, surviving in this wonderful world of uh, podcasting. Uh, We have, from the band Less Than Jake... Chris DeMakes uh, today. Uh, do you know, uh, do you know, sir, Chris DeMake, or should I say, do you know less than Jake at all?
2: Uh, only vaguely, I must <clears throat> confess. I, you know, I can identify them as a fundamentally a scar band with a punk edge, um, but I do not own any of their records. So I'm not a, a great uh, source of authority on less than Jake, but um, you know, the, it, The guy's an interesting guy, isn't he? Doesn't he have a podcast about songwriters?
1: He does. But before I'm going to get to that, you know, Less Than Jake toured with Bon Jovi on the Crush Tour in 2000. And if you had been wise enough to manage Bon Jovi, you would have had them as your opener.
2: (laughs) Wow, I missed an opportunity. (laughs) I've missed a lot of opportunities. I've also dodged a
1: lot of bullets. You've dodged a lot of bullets, but yeah, no. Uh, Chris uh, makes, uh, of course, he he uh, makes fun of his name because he says that growing up he was teased a lot of. You know, Krista makes a pizza and Krista makes a mistake and Krista makes whatever. So his podcast is called, guess what? Krista makes a podcast. Uh-huh. there which, you go. Which is absolutely funny, and of course, uh, I'm going to title this episode Krista makes an interview. So uh we're just gonna keep playing with that yeah nobody has got his own podcast where he deals with uh, songwriters and if you look at the people on there with the exception currently of uh, Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick most of the interviews are in that sort of punk ska R&B world uh, somewhat different to what I do here because I, I normally deal with the uh, you know 80s hair guys if you want but and that's a whole other story I'm. I'm. I'm thinking. It's time well, to to move away from those. It's
2: kind. <laughs> well, interestingly, you should say move away because, in a way, that's a kind of a segue to a thought that just came to my mind. Was, uh, and uh, this is part of a conversation I had with somebody who I respect as a songwriter the other day, and uh, he, he was talking about the demise of the music business as a whole, especially with COVID, and one of the things I pointed out to him was that one of the aspects of rock and roll that has diminished, if not evaporated completely, is its ability to test social taboos. Um, You know, one of the, the most silly adjectives ascribed to a band was to call them dangerous. But Within that perspective, there was a sense that some bands had the capacity to test taboo and maybe stick a pin in social hypocrisy and so on and so forth. But, you know, the old English wannabe black uh, musicians, you know, have been replaced by young um, American wannabe blacks who want to be crooks and hoods. So the sense of danger in rock and roll is flaccid now, I think. And I think if you want to connect to a mass consciousness, I think you should keep your content in something that is slightly of a higher state of mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To echo Stevie Wonder a little bit, you know, take it higher. A Sly Stone said back in the day, um, you know, make sure your content has a little bit of intelligence. Yep. Heart. Well, it's got a lot of heart. A little bit of a little bit of muscle, but definitely make sure it's got some soul.
1: Well, you know, and and I have to say that's why um Recently, I've, I've, I've stopped doing interviews mostly, uh, especially with with some of those 80s guys. Not because I don't like them and I don't support the music, but it, it, has, it has become unfun. And then I got an opportunity to interview Right Said Fred, you know, I'm too sexy. And everybody uh. around me sort of went, oh, come on now. What are you going to do? First of all, those two guys could not have been more delightful. They were just absolutely, you want to talk about heart? they had heart they had a lot of heart you know they they know exactly what happened uh with their career and how this song fluked out and you know gave them an entire career and and you know bought their house and and they're they're they're, they're you know you know they're adorable they're self-deprecating and all that and, and they also have the muscle since you're talking about horse and muscle and right after right said fred i interviewed chris and it was so refreshing to hear stories from a different perspective. And, you know, he's got his new book, Black, uh, Blast from the Past, which you, you should check out. And, and Les Than Jake have uh, silver linings. And I have only seen the band once or twice live uh, in my life in a festival situation where they come on and do, you know, 35 minutes for And it's energetic and it's it's irreverent and it's fun and you know what I, I i those two interviews the right said fred and the chris uh, demakes have sort of said hey you know what keep going but just maybe go find some other pastures to 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 tend so you know i i i do want to keep doing uh, the interviews but i think i'm going to have to rethink who what where and when uh, there are some bands, particularly in the 80s, that no matter how many times you interview them, no matter how many times you promote them, no matter how many times, they're just miserable sods. And they will continue to be miserable <laughs> sods until the day they die. And if anybody is currently thinking, wow, LA Guns? Yeah, <laughs> they're one of those bands that are just miserable. And they're just continuously miserable. And, you know, <laughs> fuck them. Um, well,
2: if you're, going, if you're going to seek other pastors, I'm going to put in a request. Um, if you can find him and connect with him, I'd love to hear a conversation with Glenn Johns.
1: Yeah, I'd lo- you know, I'm trying to f- track him down now. Uh, I, I tracked down, right, said Fred. Uh, Krista makes um, his publicist track me down, which was nice. Um, but you know who I spoke to yesterday who said they would do an interview in the next week or two is Vinnie Moore. Do you know Vinny? Uh, help me out. Name, name It's recognized. Rings a bell. I can't place him. Real simple. He's been the uh, guitarist in UFO for the last whatever. Right,
2: right, 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 right. Yeah, and, I'm with
1: you. And I thought, you know what? Uh, he's ha- he, I've, I've interviewed him in the past for his own solo records, but I just want to chat about being in UFO, the pressure of, of replacing or, or or playing the parts of Paul Chapman and, and Michael Shanker and uh, bringing his own... Because I, I've been listening to... I've been going on this deep dive of UFO. And, you know, when they play rock bottom, there's always that breakdown in the middle where there's a solo. And oh, what's the album called? Uh, live Showtime? What's that? Uh, hold on. i got to look this up because I... It is called... Uh, oh, I don't have it in front of me. But they have an album that came out, a live album. I think it's called Showtime. I so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a, it's a live album with Vinny, and they do right. Rock Bottom, and they go down into this guitar breakdown. And when you hear the Michael ones, you you, you sort of know his guitar parts are singable. Like you know exactly he's going to hit that note, that like when he does that his solo in in Rock Bottom, and the right. Vinny solo strays from the formula or strays from what Michael was doing. Not that it was formula, he strays from it. And he gets into this sort of muso, you know, jazzy tech, and it's fascinating. And it's just like, wow, they they brought in these replacement guys, and yet these replacement guys are as vital or or as important to the history of that band as any of them, you know. Well, the thing the thing about being
2: and and, and it's an awkward term, replacement, but that's, the the actual function but you know that's a a tough road to hoe when you're trying to step into the part of the stage that was occupied by Michael Schenker but the other aspect of it from my point of view is that um, back in the day when I contemplated the conundrum of how do you keep it fresh every night when you're doing three on, one off two on, one off three-on, one-off, four-on, one-off. When you're you're touring like that, how do you keep keep it fresh? How do you keep your imagination engaged and still not disappoint those people in their individual cities that you go to who want to hear a live rendering of that which they know? And oversimplified, but basically the, the formula I came up with was Nail the vocals, sing the vocal melodies as they're known. But when you get to a guitar solo, you know what was there before. So that's your safety net. But if you're feeling it, stretch out. And that to me was always the place where you could stretch out and and have the song be of the moment and in the moment, was to stretch out. So for a replacement guy, that's a place where he can be himself.
1: Oh yeah, and okay. So I I, I looked it up while you were talking. the uh, The album is is called Showtime. I, I my brain does still work, and I forgot to mention that Jason Bonham is the drummer on this. So you've got Vinny and Jason who are sort of the new parts on the car here, and it just rolls, man. It it that album. Uh, it, it just sounds fucking fantastic. I mean, I I normally don't put full live albums in my in my playlists on the phone. I usually Separate them and you know combine them with other live shows and sort of make a Frankenstein live show, but not this one. It's too good.
2: Talking of um, talking of Jason Bonham, yes, and I digress. But talking of Jason Bonham, I will tell you that I checked into something that I don't think I'd seen before, and it was the Kennedy Center um, acknowledgement of Led Zeppelin where, you know, the president hangs a medal around their neck and says, well done for screwing all those groupies. Um, but I was very touched and moved when Jason Bonham slipped onto the kit behind Anne and Nancy, from Heart, obviously, and they did Stairway to Heaven and killed it.
1: Was that the that uh, the Kennedy Center version? Yes. Yeah that that's that is one of those classic performances. That that one I've I've seen it on YouTube and I think like four other million people have seen it on YouTube. That is a classic well, through, performance of that song.
2: Four million and one now because I finally got there. So, <laughs>
1: so I found I I found it very moving. By the way, speaking of moving, uh, I have my phone on in front of me. Anyway, I just got a Google alert for Alan Niven and it says. Uh, from metal injection, that time Eddie Van Halen tried to join Kiss, and then it, it, it quotes our little um, our little segment we did last week, uh, remembering um, uh, the great Eddie Van Halen. So there you go, you you made news, and um, you know for the for the folks that say, "Hey, uh, Eddie never tried to join Kiss." Yeah, around '82, '83, there was a moment. I don't know how serious it was or just a passing flirtation, but Kiss needed a new guitarist and Richie Sambora went in and Doug Aldrich went in and, uh, who else went in? Uh, you know, Vinny Vinnie Vincent obviously went in, a bunch of other people. I think even Mitch Perry might've tried out and, uh, Eddie was in there. So, so, but Hey, look at that as, as we're talking, I got a Google alert for you, Alan. Isn't that, isn't that synchronous, uh, synchronous, synchronicity?
2: It's synchronicity.
1: Yes. And uh, since we're, we're talking about uh, synchronicity and all these other things, let's get over to uh, Krista Makes. Uh, uh, Krista Makes. I was going to say Krista Makes a Podcast. But uh, Krista Makes an interview this time. Uh, absolutely cheerful, pleasant guy. You are going to love, love, love this chat, folks. He, he's, he's a great guy. He, 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 he was very interesting. Uh, he, he renewed my faith in doing interviews. Uh, and uh, as did the right said Fred guys, and you cannot wait till Alan puts his comments on that on that episode. It'll be terrific, right, Alan? You're you're gonna talk to me about how important it is to have a one hit wonder.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, and a good can, song can is a good song is a good song. That's that's what I'm gonna say.
2: Listen, um, if you have a one if you're a one hit wonder and you have one hit, that's more hits than. The vast majority of people who try.
1: Yes, and uh, I haven't actually verified this fact, so uh, I don't know if I'll call it a fact, but uh, it has always been told to me, and I've, I've heard it in the past, that there are only two bands that had their first single go to number one, and that is Right Set Fred with I'm Too Sexy and The Beatles. So Right Set Fred and the Beatles stand alone in a category. So you've got to love that. <laughs> and you know what? I'll actually, I'm going to go research that. Before we do the Right Said Fred episode, I will research it to make sure it's actually, uh, you know, uh, th- there's a veracity to what I said. And if not? Well,
2: hey. you need to research it geographically. Because oh, it's in the U.K., in might- the U.K., Oh, it's in the U.K.? Yes. We're because not talking
1: about the Philippines or Thailand. <laughs> you know, they're I, both number I one have in a, Indonesia.
2: I have, a, I have a suspicion that I can vaguely remember because it's a while ago, but I have a suspicion remembering that the very first Beatles single did not go to number one, but that it was the second single that did.
1: So then what but I could be wrong. But hold on then. So what you're saying then is that right said Fred has done Might something. Stand alone. That's right. They have Everyone done something alone. that even the Beatles couldn't do. Aha. That is even a better story. Yep. That would be awesome. <laughs> so you but look it's at worth the list looking and at carefully. <laughs> so you look at the history and you go, number one singles, first time out, right said Fred, nobody else, and then in second place, the Beatles. That is. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chris DeMakes, everybody. Here he is from uh, Less Than Jake. Cheers. We are speaking with uh, Less Than Jake's uh, Chris DeMake. The new album, of course, is called Silver Linings. Even on YouTube, it's called Silver Linings, maybe. And, of course, his podcast. Maybe. maybe. Well, well <laughs> by the time people hear this, maybe. Uh, and, of course, uh, he's got his uh, Chris DeMakes a uh, Podcast podcast. And, of course, the new book. Which is called Blast from the Past, a photographic journey through the touring life of less than Jake. Uh, as we say here in Montreal, Bonjour, sir. How are you?
0: Bonjour to you. I'm doing great, Mitch. Thanks for having me. I- followed your show for many years i'm a old uh, rock metal guy at heart so this is an honor for me to uh, be speaking to you thank you
1: well you're welcome well in fact let's let's talk about that old metal heart uh real quick
0: uh eddie van halen passed
1: away recently i'm assuming if you're an old metal heart you must have been touched by his guitar playing and his his performances and, and everything um any words on on what the rock community has lost
0: Oh, um, well, I've heard some people refer to him as the, the Beethoven of rock music, and uh, he was a virtuoso. He uh, Nobody sounded like him. Um, there's some guys that got close. There's some guys that played great and had that style. Vito Bratta comes to mind, but you always knew it was Eddie. Um, he had his own tone. Um, you know, he sold millions of 5150 amps and uh those frankenstein guitars but nobody could ever make it sound like him (laughs) and uh i read a interview recently with a producer i believe it was andy johns who was in the studio uh with the for the balance record and uh he had grabbed Ed's guitar ed went to take a piss break or a smoke break or something he was trying to play a part or something he's like he looks at the engineer. he's like what the fuck happened to the sound He's like, "What do you mean?" He's like, a dial just sounds different." And then Ed walked in two seconds later, picked up the guitar, and there was the sound again. It was—it was all in his hands, you know. Um, he's just amazing, and uh, I love—loved loved everything about him and his music. It was was uh, a huge loss for the for the rock and roll world.
1: Yeah, it, it really is, and you're so right about the fingers. There are so many people that try to be Ace Frehley, or they try to be Eddie Van Halen, or they try to be whatever. Even Ingvae Mom, and she's like, "No." You'll never be that because you don't have their fingers. <laughs> you know, you might have their technique, but you don't have their fingers. Uh, let us quickly uh, move on here to a blaster from the past, the photographic journey. So talk to me about that and, and how that started. You know, you're out on tour, opening for Bon Jovi even at, at one point. Where did the idea come to to, to to get these pictures? And and are all these pictures taken by you? Are some fans submitted? Are these, uh, you know, uh, roadies submitted? How did this book come together?
0: Yeah, well, so, uh, all of the above on, on the photos. Uh some fans started to send them in. Uh, uh a dear Roadie friend of ours, uh did a lot of them, and a lot of them were from my personal collection. Um I've read every rock biography and biography that is, Mitch. I got hundreds of them uh and uh bookshelves full of them and now I have a phone full and I do Kindle now. <laughs> but uh I've read them all and I put pen to paper a number of times over the years I wanted to do my own uh biography autobiography. And it was all kind of reading the same. Hi, I'm Krista Makes. I was born in Livonia, Michigan in 1973. And I would get a paragraph or two or a chapter or two, and I would stop and would sit for six months. And long story short, I always wanted to write a book. Um, just kind of just kept getting these false starts. Uh, December 4th of 2018, I woke up that morning, kind of like any other morning, and uh, was making breakfast for the kids, got them up and running. And um, I posted a picture. Uh, for my collection of the band back from like 1993 and I put a little caption on it, and I just funnily wrote I just put a little caption. I said uh, I'm going to post a picture a day uh, for a year until I surpass our bass player with Instagram followers, and I put haha, and uh, our sax player was quick to write and say you won't make it past two weeks and i'm like i'll show that SOB. And uh, every day I'd get up and I'd post another picture. Well, about three weeks into it, uh, probably late uh, December 2018, I realized that I was writing my book uh, one story and uh, uh, one picture at a time. And uh, it, it wasn't going to follow any chronological order. It was just going to be just my life in the last uh, 28 years and less than Jake. And I made it all the way till December 4th, uh, or 5th, excuse me, of uh, of uh, 2019. So once one year was completed, then I started to uh, compile it uh, in, into the book that's uh, coming out soon. Yeah,
1: that's, that's a fascinating take on that because, you know, when you look back at the bands, and we just spoke about Van Halen, in the 70s and even in the early 80s, they didn't have access to this technology in terms of, of you know, in, in, uh, iPhones and instant pictures and Instagram and all that. So they tell these long memoirs. But if I could have this kind of book from you know, Paul Stanley or or Alex Van, I'd be all over this. So in a sense, you're creating, a, you're, well, you're sort of creating a new medium in the sense you're you're telling it visually. Um, so talk to me about how important were visuals for the band, Less Than Jake? Is that something that you relied on or is that something that was just part of what was going on? Is it part of the strategy and part of the marketing for the band?
0: Well, of course. I mean, we've, we've always prided ourselves on being a live band and, and we, Certainly took a lot of those hard rock elements. You know, it wasn't uh, in vogue in the 90s to be a punk band and to get on stage dressed like uh, David Lee Ross. So, and I, and I was, so that was. And then I would take the stage the next night. I was dressed as a construction worker. And then I'd be dressed as a baseball player, like with the, you know, with the mascara under the eyes, uh, <laughs> the hat on, the full baseball, like strips, cleats, everything. Then the next day I'd be a, a janitor. Um, and I had just these different costumes, and a lot of it was bore out of being bored. You'd pull up at and, and, and a venue at 2 in the afternoon, and you'd walk down the road, and what is there in your venues? Ah, there's thrift stores. So I was collecting wigs and costumes, and so my old roadie, who would be on the road with us, he would take all these pictures of me, and that's where a lot of the content came from, and the stories are just hilarious. Uh, the Bon Jovi tour, as you mentioned before, when I went on that tour, um, this was in 2000. Bon Jovi, of course, was trying to know, walk, shed their 80s image. They were have you know kind of being rebranded at that point. And there I was going and asked with spandex looking like Kip Winger uh, on stage opening for them. And I'll never forget the first night I was in Fort Lauderdale. And the very second show I was walking down the hallway. And there comes Tico Torres, the drummer. And Tico looks at me and goes, you killed me the other night when you said, hi, we're Winger from Florida. You know, so they got the joke. And uh, we just we've always had a ball, man. We've always had the visual on stage of like, you know, the the punk bands. They had to look a certain way, and and I always went completely against the grain. I had fun with it. I I came from the '80s, and I wanted to to have fun with you know the heavy metal outfits and yeah. all the other silly shit I was doing. A-
1: and it worked. <laughs> can can I can I tell you my Bon Jovi crush story?
0: It, it, you, you'll love Please this.
1: Do. All right. So so they're playing in Quebec City in. The early part of the year, and it's still sort of cold up there by I think it was in early May, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm out in Montreal, so I drive up to the show early, and I figured, okay, I'm gonna get to the venue early. I'm gonna park it in the venue because if you get there before five o'clock, they open the gates and they don't charge you the 25 bucks, so you can go. So I got there at two in the afternoon in black shorts, black hoodie, looking like a roadie, and I'm speaking only English. So I get there and I listen. It's a three and a half hour drive, so I get there, and I have to pee. So I say to the roadie or to the security guard, I say that where's the bathroom? And he goes down the hall to the right. I'm like, oh. So he lets me into the venue and goes down to you know he, he thinks I'm a roadie, so he points me backstage. So I walk by and you know the guys are there and there's you know, so, go, so I'm in, and I'm thinking, well, if I leave this, I'll never get back here. So I stayed the entire day, right? And the security guard sees me go back and forth e- easily fifty times in the day, and uh, I, I get to watch Bon Jovi sound check. And of course, Bon Jovi has a closed sound check, but they've seen me there all day, so, so they let me in, <laughs> right? Which, which is great. Now, at the end of the show, I figured, okay, I need to get out of here. I need to drive back to Montreal. I have to be at work tomorrow morning. It's a three-hour drive. I'm not getting home till two in the morning, and I start running out, and the security guard grabs me, and he goes, "Oh," and I go, oh, "Fuck." oh, there goes my day. And he goes, no, 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 it's over here. Uh, your your dressing room's down the left. I'm Oh, yes, of course. Of course it is. Sure. So so I go down to, to this dressing room and there was about 30 strippers in it. And uh, they, they let me in and I'm standing there. And then, you know, slowly the band starts walking in. So you McDonald walks in. He's like, hey, how's it going? He's, he, he has no interest in that. So he just start talking to me, you know, and then uh, David Bryan comes in and he sees me. I go, hey, David. And he goes, uh, and he sees the girls and he goes right over to them. Tico Torres walks in, uh, and goes straight over to the girls. And I'm standing in you know, right by the door. And John Bon Jovi walks in, bumps into me. And I go, hey, how's it going? And he looks in, he sees the girls and he leaves. And so I spent this entire I, I spent like two hours talking with with you, McDonald, with these 30 strippers as they were all over uh, uh, David Bryan and um, uh, uh, Tico Torres. And it was just. So I ended up leaving at like three in the morning or two thirty in the morning. I got in at like six in the morning. I had to get up at seven to be at work for eight. So I got you know forty five minutes of sleep, but that was my my crush story. So because I looked like a roadie and I showed up early, I got to be in the stripper room for for two <laughs> for two hours with the band. So now yeah, that
0: you, you looked the part.
1: I know, right? So that's 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 the story. Uh, but just real quick, since we're on on the Bon Jovi tour, what was that like? Because you know, for for many years they they were doing Cinderella opens and you know all these sort of '80s bands open. And as you said, they were starting to rebrand and they started to get SR71 and uh, what was it, Eve to Adam? No, um, uh, Eve, Eve Six. Whatever that band was called. And then they've got you. Yeah,
0: there was some- it was Eve well, 6, right? Well, was none of those bands wanted to do it. So the, the real story is is around June of 2000 or so, Bon Jovi had put out their feelers for opening acts. And the bands at the time, Smash Mouth, Sugar Ray, Eve 6, Collective Soul, the bands that were kind of popular in the late 90s, they all turned Bon Jovi down. They're like, Bon Jovi? Because you got to remember, Bon Jovi took a good five years off starting around 95. John was trying to move into acting a little bit. And uh, I think it was probably the best move for them because, you know, those 80s bands just weren't doing well um, in America, at least. And uh, when they came back, it was before VH1 got behind the record. And MTV wasn't catering to me anymore at that point as a 25-year-old. MTV was catering to a younger generation and Bon Jovi wasn't going to get played on MTV. But VH1 was now catering to the 25 to 40-year-olds who grew up with all the 80s stuff. And by the end of August, It's My Life blew up on VH1. John reinvented himself. Um, he was still a great looking guy, had a new haircut. The band was no longer looked at this as this 80s, you know, has been band. And by that time, you know, when I first, my manager first told me about the tour, I was thinking, eh, this is Bon Jovi. It'll probably do three to five thousand c- theaters a night sold out. Boy, I couldn't have been more wrong. Uh, it was twenty thousand ba- uh, feet basketball and hockey arenas every night for three weeks. It was insane, oh yeah, uh, and that 's not- how we that 's how we got that 's how we got the tour. Our manager said, Do you want to do this We're like it 's such a great story? Of course we want to do it. We were the sole opening act on the the first leg of their crush tour,
1: yeah you see and so your your expectations were 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 lower, and if you looked at some of the bands around, you know, whatever the Scorpions or Def Leppard or the White Snakes, you know, three to five thousand at that time would have been normal, I guess. Um, yeah. Did that get you a whole bunch of new fans? That the was there any impact to to your band? Did you look at it afterwards and go, Fudge, we just sold X amount of CDs in in Fort Lauderdale. Who knew? Or
0: was it like we? No, we we did it for we did it for print and press promotion. Bottom line, we we knew what we were doing. We knew they paid us a decent money. We, you know, we were getting more money if we went out on our own, but they, you know, they were giving us uh, five grand a night um, to, to play. We got a one uh, one t shirt and like one CD at a kiosk on like the fourth floor behind the taco stand, and um, you had to give them fifty
1: percent. <laughs> Uh, or twenty five yeah. or whatever.
0: So we yeah. weren't we weren't making any money on merch. It was literally we went out and uh, you know we we were able to pay ourselves a little bit. <clears throat> you know we were Bon Jovi was gracious enough too because all the shows were sold out. So on the off nights because they do like one show two nights off, one or two shows in a row, a night or two off. You know, so they were playing maybe maybe three nights a week. Um and so on the off nights we were doing club shows to offset the the finances. But we did it for the story and to this day we still still get mileage out of it. In fact, it was uh we did that tour in November of two thousand. So fast forward to July of two thousand one, we were on the Vans Warp tour and I remember we were in St. Louis where we had played with with Bon Jovi on that tour. And uh I'm out on uh just got done playing. And I'm coming back. And it was, it was so hot that day. It was like 95 degrees. And this guy comes up to me and he's panting and he's holding a suit jacket. He's got a tie and he's full dress for work. And, uh, I'm walking back to our tour bus, and he says, "Hey, man, hey, I just want to say hi. I got to get back to work. I came here to see you. I saw you on the Bon Jovi tour. You're like one of my favorite bands now. (laughs) So, you know, we we made a few fans here and there. We made a few fans here or there, but it really paid off. off You made
1: made a fan, so that that's what it's all about. And it it, it is sort of an interesting." combination and it was kind of fun to see what bon jovi was doing uh and I'll, and I'll ask you this business question the geek business question then we'll move on to the other stuff but when you were playing those off nights were they gracious enough to say play or did they give you one of these radius clauses where oh you can't be within 300 miles or you know what, what was that well, sort
0: of? yeah that was the thing mitch they didn't care because all the arenas were sold out ahead of time the, the tour was sold out before we, we even got in the bus to do the tour the whole thing was sold out every ticket. So they, they didn't care. Usually those, those radius clauses are. So when we were, when we got offered to do the tour and it started to get booked and we were looking at, wow, I wonder if we could do these shows. We were getting notifications back from our agent. Hey, Fort Lauderdale's already sold out. Boston sold out, New York sold out, Jersey sold out. So when when we went to their agent and said, "Hey, the guys want to play off nights," they didn't care because there was no. It wasn't like we. They needed us to bring tickets, and the tickets were already sold out.
1: Wow, that's a, that's amazing, and, and it just goes to show, you know, there are some bands that are just timeless. You know, the Stones and stuff. And you can say whatever you want about Bon Jovi's music. I happen to love it, but they maintained. So good for them. And to, talking about bands that make it, your band. The initial plan, and you've said this in, in previous interviews, is you just wanted to go play bars on the weekend. You didn't expect to be doing this for almost thirty years. Um, where did it sort of turn from? And, and you know, maybe correct me on the word, but where did it turn from like hobby to career? And you just went, "Wow, okay, we've got something." And, you know, did a record guy, record company guy, see you at a local Florida show and say, "Hey, we got to sign you." Where was that that moment where you just went? Oh, this is not a hobby. This is too good to be a hobby.
0: Yeah, well, it, it it started when it was before we ever got signed. So we put our first show in in July of ninety two. And it was about two years after that, to so where we just and it was happening so fast that we didn't even have time to think. But I always say when someone said, well, when did you know you made it? You know, it wasn't that first record advance from Capitol Records. It wasn't getting signed. It wasn't seeing our record in the store. It was literally around Florida where we were building up this following in games of our hometown. But now we were going to Daytona. And the first time we went there, it was like 40 kids. And the second time we went there, there was like 90 kids. And the third time we went there, there was like 200 kids. It just was growing exponentially. Then we were going to Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville, and we were just seeing this. And like kids freaking out, losing their minds. And uh, that's kind of when the light bulb went off of, well, we, we could probably take this outside of Florida. And we started networking outside of Florida. Of course, it was all pre-social media, so you were doing a lot of landline phone calls and snail mail letters to, to different uh fanzines and different uh you know people that in different scenes and a lot of times we'd call up record stores and <laughs> hey can we you know ship you some of our cds to get in the record store we're going to be on tour there soon and we just worked really hard and, and the work we were doing something that we loved so it never felt like work but uh, early on we, we knew something was happening and then uh, we caught the attention of an A&R person who had uh, saw one of our cassettes. It was like at one of those North by Northwest, South by South. It actually, was CMJ, I think, in New York. And uh, someone handed him a cassette, and he went back to L.A., and he listened to this thing. It was just like, whoa. And I came home one day uh, from delivering pizzas and hit the answering machine. It's like, hi, my name is Craig. Uh, I'm from uh, Capitol Records, an A&R guy. I'd like to speak to somebody in less than Jake. I'm like, okay, which one of my buddies is yanking my leg here, you know? <laughs> And that
1: was kind of it. Wow, you see, dreams do, come, dreams do come true. Now, if it wasn't for that phone call and and, and the band had just continued playing sort of the Florida circuit for, for shits and giggles, what was the plan for you? I mean, were, were you planning on being an accountant? Were you going to be the pizza delivery guy going into his 40s? I mean, what was sort of the, the plan?
0: Well, it, it's interesting, too, because... Um, and I was always going to go into radio. It's why my podcast is kind of natural for me, and I've certainly done a million interviews over the years, but uh, I was a telecommunications major, and I always thought that I would would be in radio. Um, But to answer your question, a lot of the 80s bands um, and and bands of yesteryear, the bands that preceded us, I should say, they were all so, um, everything was contingent on getting signed. If you didn't get signed, you, you know, all the LA bands, it's like, and when they were getting dropped in the 90s, they all went to hell in a handbasket, and like if I could go back in time and I didn't have the band, I would I, I could have managed Warrant and all those bands. I could have kept them on the road. I would have kept those guys making money. I would have taken their egos and their, their expectations down. So for us, we didn't have to get signed to a major. We were making money before we ever went got signed to Capitol because we came from this punk rock ethos of do it yourself keep the prices low, do low volume, really cool, different merchandise items, keep them fresh with the fans, engage with the fans. Um, it was this whole uh, you know, work ethic that we had that, that we just kept doing day after day. We were doing mail order out of the house. We were getting upwards of four or 500 letters a week from fans before we ever got signed to Capitol. We'd get up in the morning, we'd split the, the pile of letters, we'd write each fan back. So, you know, even if we wouldn't have gotten signed, uh, and and no disrespect to Capitol or later on Warner Brothers, but we were never a household name. We never sold millions of records where we needed a record label. Um, It would have been nice, but uh, we just did our own thing. We sold a respectable amount of records, but we're able to, you know, pull the bus up pretty much anywhere we go around the world and and have people uh, come see us play to this day.
1: Yeah, and, and and by the way, you mentioned Warrant and all those sort of older bands back then, but at this point, since you started in 92, you have now moved into the Heritage Act uh, territory, so you're now classic rock, yeah. go figure, right?
0: Yeah, no, and um, it's it's something that I embrace. It's something that a lot of those guys had a hard time with, and I embrace it. Uh, you want to call me a legacy act? Let's do it, because we, we are we have records in the 90s that we don't have to play a song past those records and the audience is going to go nuts. Absolutely. That's a good good position to be in. You know, um, I I don't look at any of it as a negative. uh, There's certain times when people will say things like, you guys are still around? I used to listen to you guys in the 90s. And I'm like, that's great. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is great. Because if they hadn't listened in the 90s, I wouldn't be here today. So thank you for... I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, In terms of uh, engagement, you mentioned mentioned that you were engaged with the fans, and of course back then it really meant putting a stamp on a letter and running to the post office and sending it off. Now with Twitter and and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all the other ones that they invent every every week, there's a new one. How important is it for you and the band to maintain that engagement and provide something for the fans? Because there are so many of the bands, especially that I follow, where you'll go to their website and it'll be like, wow, it hasn't been updated since 2013. And you're like, what What the fuck are they doing? Uh, how important well, is um, that engagement to, to keep
0: something going? I always say that we are still operating in an analog mindset in a digital world. Meaning those fans that we used to sit right back with our hands and lick a stamp and go run it to the post office, we're doing it with our fingertips on a keyboard now. Everybody that writes us on Instagram, everybody that writes me personally on Instagram, I write them back no matter what they say. sometimes we'll say, Hey, just want to thank you for your years of music. Hey man, that's really nice. Thanks for the kind words, Chris. Just that, that touchback, what that does for people to this day. I have people bring letters that I wrote them in the nineties to a show and say, Hey man, will you sign this letter that you sent me back in 1996? Of course I will. You know, so um, we hang out at the shows. We, we go out to the merch booth, we meet the fans, we engage with them. Um it is integral for a band like ours, especially in, in today's climate, because the playing field is different now. Um it was if you think if you thought there was a lot of bands in the late eighties or early nineties, there's there's the glut of them now. It's because it's everything's uh so much easier yeah. it's easy to uh, uh to record at home you don't have to go to a studio you record at home and then two seconds later with the push of a button it's on youtube it's online it's on instagram yeah. so there's a glut of stuff and how do you get noticed in that glut i believe it's actually harder today to be in a band than it was when we were doing it in 1992.
1: oh 100 percent i mean back then you know aerosmith would put out an album or abba or or alice cooper and that was it for the next year there, there was nothing else and and MT, there was no MTV and radio you know your local DJ either liked the Van Halen or he didn't like the Van Halen that's what you heard right now now, now there's 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 8000 Van Halens putting out a song every hour and you're like what the who, who do I listen how do I ah, what am i going to do um speaking of that let's let's get over to it uh, to silver linings and and you did mention that you could play all the albums from the '90s and never have to play anything post, you know, 1999. Fans would show up and they would love every minute of it. So then, uh, talk to me about the the fan the the band's perspective, I should say, in terms of when you make a new album, do you say, okay, we got to go to the sound, you know, we're like ACDC of the ska punk world, we have to go to the sound, or do you say, listen, we can do whatever the fuck we want. We've been doing this for 30 years. I'm going to play whatever I want to play. Like what's sort of the motivation to make a new album and then how do you approach the sound? You just write whatever comes out, comes out. Do you do you overanalyze it and say, Well, you know, they really like that album in ninety four? Let's let's do that. Like, how do you sort of approach silver linings?
0: Well, you know, you're you're never, no matter how great your record is, you're never gonna have thirty years of memories attached to it. Metallica's last record has a song called Spit Out the Bone on Hardwired to Self Destruct. I that's one of their greatest songs ever but it wasn't on master of puppets. Therefore it doesn't have 34 years of memories attached to it for people, no matter how good the song is. Correct. hundred percent correct. They're not going to, they're not going to love it like that. So we're still making music for ourselves. We feel that it keeps us not relevant in terms of we're relevant. We're going to be on TV again. It's relevant to ourselves. We're, we're a working band. We love creating music and it keeps, it gives us a drive. So, we love to, love to, love to create. And, uh, and, and we always will, we do, we do albums for ourselves. It's no difference. And you look at a heritage Jack, I noticed Blue Oyster Cult just released a new record, Uriah Heap. These guys, they don't need to release records, but they love music, you know, and they're going to have a few fans here and there who are going to pick up the record or stream it or what have you. And, but they're, they're still creating and, and I know why they're creating because they're doing it for the same reasons we are. As far as the songs, um, I have uh, tons of songs I work on all the time that, uh, they're way different than than the sound of Less Than Jake that I'd be super happy to put out uh, and and do. But I'm in a band with the other guys that that uh, it's not so much we have a formula, but we do have a sound, and we try to kind of stick true to that. Uh, you know, we'll do we'll try to push the boundary a little bit, maybe lyrically or musically. Um, but, uh, we do have a sound, so I'm probably the most adventurous in the band. I, I, I'd have no problem doing a song with just a, a piano and a vocal, but it doesn't sound like less than Jake to, to some of the guys. And, and I, and I respect that. And, uh, you know, we've been together for, for almost 30 years now. So it's, it it, it seems, it seems to be working. Um, we have a new drummer, uh, Matt Yonker, uh, Matt's been with us, a guy, he's done kind of every job under the sun, uh, with us over the years, but, uh, he's a fantastic drummer and. Our uh, original drummer, he left the band in 2018, and Matt took over. So this is Matt's first record, and he's brought a a new energy uh, behind the kit, and that's definitely uh, influenced uh, Silver Linings.
1: Yeah, it really has. So now, talking about influence, uh, you gave an interview years ago that uh, you talked about your favorite guitar albums or your favorite albums, and uh, some of them uh, appealed to me. There was Master of Puppets by Metallica. Uh, Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue, and of course, uh, Quiet Riot's uh, mental health, metal health, I should say. Um, with Frankie Benelli, who was a personal friend who passed away recently. Uh, first of all, talk to me about that loss, but also, what did that Quiet Riot album mean to you? I mean, you 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 listen to what Less Than Jake does, and you know, we said you know the ska punk thing, and yet Master of Puppets is definitely metal. Shout at the Devil is, is definitely metal. Um, what was it about those albums? And let's start off with Quiet Riot.
0: Well, first of all, uh, Frankie's in my book. <laughs> he was the last person, uh, one of the last people in memoriam in, uh, in the back of my book that I gave a shout out to. Uh, but Frankie's in the book. I took a picture uh, with the guys in Quiet Riot. We were playing with Descendants at the joint in Vegas in 97. Quiet Riot was playing the next night. They got there that afternoon and I'm standing there Pushing our gear in, and I look over, and there's the four original members of Quiet Riot. I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" So I go up and ask for a picture. So Frankie's actually in the book. Um, that was a hard one uh, to swallow because uh, he was one of my favorite drummers. I not only love what he did Quiet Riot, but he plays on my favorite WASP album, The Headless Children. Um, just he killed it on that record. Um, but Metal Health was my first ever cassette. In 1983 my mom uh bought it for me and uh, i wore that damn thing out um and you know why the music speaks so much to me and how it translated over to less than jake and i think this is part of the reason why a lot of ska bands kind of had their day and they were a niche thing um you know when we're so much more than a ska or a punk band um i've always said we're a pop band disguised as a punk band with, with a horn section um our melodies are no different than, than rock and roll melodies of yesteryear. Any of the, the, the pop metal melodies that, uh, that I loved growing up. So it all translates over, over to our music. And you can, even though it, to, to, you know, someone hearing it the first time I like, go, oh, this is Scott, or, this is punker." I hear horns. If you, if you listen closely to Roger and Mys harmonies, you'll, you'll hear, uh, <laughs> you'll hear an eighties written all over it. So, um, but yeah, Frankie was, uh, was a huge loss to me, and, and it's one of those things about getting older. You're starting to lose your idols. It sucks.
1: It, you know what? I'll, here, I'll, and I'll tell you this from from the fifty year old guy's perspective. Uh, you know, and I'll, and I'll go. I'll refer back to, to both Frankie and to uh, Eddie when when they passed away. You know, I always held out hope that, you know, I would see Frankie play one more time. And I always held out hope that Van Halen was going to come back and they're going to do a reunion tour and a farewell tour and a this tour and a that tour. And and what I realized when they passed away is not only do I miss them, part of me died because when you go to a Van Halen show at the Bell Center or the Staples Center or the whatever center, for for two hours, you get to be eighteen year old Mitch again, and that'll never happen. And so you're you're faced with this. Well, fifty year old Mitch is here, and that's that's and 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 it's sad because part of you dies, and it's it's just a horrible horrible feeling. And and and, and I just I wanted one more album, I wanted one more tour, and it's just it's not going to happen. And you know you
0: yeah I, I, I no, get and and
1: well, I was just gonna say. I just I'll finish on this. I'll finish this thought is when my mom was was in the seventies and eighties, and she would lose Frank Sinatra or or you know John Lennon or Elvis Presley. I didn't understand, and it it sort of puts a finality to you in the sense that you know for forty years. You, hey, next year there's a new there's a new Van Halen album. Hey, next year there's a new Choir Riot tour. Hey, next year, and now there's not, and it's just it 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 you know. You you lose you when you lose them. If I if that if I can say that. You,
0: well, you took the words right out of my mouth. You, you said exactly what I was going to say, Mitch. It's crazy. I uh, I'm not far behind you. I just turned 47. So uh, some years ago, I remember my mom as a kid. I, I want to say it was Lucille Ball. I remember my mom crying. I said, "What's wrong?" And I'm like, "Why is she crying over some actress she never met?" I didn't understand. I didn't understand until now. I'm probably my mom's age, but she that she was then and I'm losing people that meant so much to me and you can't go out as Van Halen without Eddie you just can't do it uh it's, it, it's it's just it, it's impossible um so there are certain bands that that aren't going to happen again and uh you're you're not going to not not going to be able to be 18 year old Chris <laughs> in the audience seeing my favorite band
1: and it, it's, it's and that's part of of the whole thing and anyway uh so you know god 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 bless them both and may they both rest in peace uh not 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 to sound uh, disrespectful let me just quickly move over to to the podcast and you have Krista makes a podcast <laughs> which is a brilliant name uh but the, the the press release on it says that the uh founding member of lust and jake has launched an inspirational songwriting podcast so when i read that i go oh it's a religious podcast great but, of course, it's not a religious podcast. So, so talk to me about, about being a, an inspirational podcast. And, and, you know, we all have to have our niche. I do the rock talk thingy, and, and now you're going to focus on the songwriting. Uh, talk to me about starting it and also, you know, why the focus on songwriting? What interests you about songwriting and getting the songwriters to come on and tell their, their process, if you want?
0: Yeah, so um, my manager was discussing, and and people have told me over the years you'd be really good at doing a podcast, and and I was like, no, 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 and this has been like ten years. People would whisper my ear all day. Everyone's doing a podcast. You should do it. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Everyone's doing a podcast. I don't want to do them, and most of the podcasts are they're just terrible. They really are. Um, you know, again, technology has given. Uh, I don't mean to sound uh, mean here, but it's kind of given every Johnny come lately with a microphone in his bedroom a platform. And fully um, agreed.
1: I'm one so, of them.
0: <laughs> you know. Let's be honest, but um, go ahead. But but you know it's um, my manager had said, look, you're doing this songwriting thing. So I do custom songs and jingles for businesses, uh, for fans. They can write me and say, hey, I want a song for my wife's anniversary. I, you know, and then they'll write me about about their relationship, and I'll put it into a song, whatever, whatever kind of song they want a punk song, a rock song, a ballad. And so I've been doing this, and he's like, this would be a great vehicle. You to promote promote that. I also do live one-on-one video consultations. I collaborate, I produce, I will give people uh, advice in the music industry. And he's like, This will be a great idea to promote all your stuff. He's like, but you need a theme for it. I i you know, you can't just be, and that was one thing I told him too. I said, There has to be a theme. I can't go on here and I, I I've done enough shitty interviews in my life. I do not want to get into band drama, gossip. I don't care that your ex-bass players suing you. I don't care you have a new drummer. I don't care that the record label dropped you. Um, I want to have something that that interests me and that can be engaging. And uh, we picked the theme of songwriting. I love songwriting. I'm fascinated by it. I always have been. What makes this song work and what doesn't make this song work? And uh, so I'll focus in on a career-defining song from uh, an artist's career. And we dive in, and I I spend a lot of time. You were mentioning you you research your guests, and you've done a fantastic job with me and every other guest I've heard you interview, Mitch. And uh, that's because you love what you do. I love what I do, and I get on there and I research it for a day. I'll pick up the guitar. I'll go through the chord arrangement. I'll analyze every lyric. I'll break it down verse bridge. And it's funny, <laughs> every episode now I'll have my uh, my. I just finished my 20th episode. I've been doing it for for six months now, and my guests. Every week we'll say, I'll say something about the song. I'm like, uh, for real? I never realized that. You know, I'll say like, you know, at this point in the song, you 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 only doubled the chorus there, and you did this line differently. Like, what? Oh, that's weird. So I'm bringing up stuff to to the artist of, of, of a song they sometimes wrote 20, 25 years ago. And I'm like, whoa, because I'm looking at it from a different lens and a different perspective than they are Um, and it's been it's been fascinating it's been really rewarding uh the show's doing great i guess got picked up by a a network called sound talent media um got a lot of great things in the works Uh, my guest next week is mark hoppus from blink 182 so i've been getting bigger and bigger fish and uh, i have people now coming to me to want to be on the show and that's a very very wonderful position to be in
1: it's a great position to be in. In fact, I'll throw one out. You know, Alan Niven of Guns N' Roses uh, fame uh, does the the show with me. And, of course, he's written all the great white stuff, including Rock Me. So he should be one of your guests. Let's be honest. Let's, let's get Alan on there and have him talk about how he wrote Rock Me and saved great white. I would white. love
0: that. And I, and I know Alan wrote Rock Me. I've read his interview uh, huh? uh, some years ago about that, and I was shocked because I, I had no idea he had a hand in that, which is really cool.
1: If you look at the great white discography, Alan Niven wrote about 80% of it. I know. So, yeah.
0: It's amazing. It's amazing.
1: It, it, it it absolutely is amazing. And he's still writing songs now, but of course he doesn't have a vehicle for them, but at some point he will. A lot of great songs. I mean, I've heard some of the stuff he's written, and he's, he's still, he can still write a catchy tune, the, the old bugger. And that's right, Alan. Yep. I just called you an old bugger. no. Uh, you know, on that, uh, th- th- Chris, this has been absolutely amazing. We, we, we've made it to, to 40 minutes. We talked about Blast from the Past. We talked about Chris DeMakes a podcast. And of course, the, uh, the new album, Silver Linings. Uh, so there you go. We, we have covered everything. We're experts, we're pros. I agree.
0: For. Yeah, well, I, I I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Mitch. And uh, if you want to shoot me an email or let me know when this is going to air, I'll, I'll throw it up on all my socials and stuff.
1: Absolutely, I will probably try to get this one out this week or next. And uh, you know, I I just had Right Said Fred on before you, and and I've always been doing these rock eighty guys, and it occurred to me that it would be a lot more fun to stretch out and do some of these bands that that have a different fan base and have a different approach and have different stories because you know listen you you mentioned warrant and all you talked to all these guys and we were hanging out at the cat house we were hanging out at the whatever we we went to the and it's just like you know what let's get some different stories and so this was this was great for me it's 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 it was it was it was fun it was just a lot of fun
0: no and Likewise, it's great for me too. That's why I wanted to be on your show with a different audience. I wanted, as I know, a lot of your audience, your rock audience, would love Less Than Jake if they gave us a chance, especially this new record. So, thank you for having me on.
1: Absolutely, and like I said, I saw you on. I guess it was the Van's the Van's Warped tour, also in the Bon Jovi stuff, and it's just fun, you know. Uh, and you think of bands like Less Than Jake and Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and all these bands, if you go see them. They're just fun. It's just a fun night, you know. And and why would why would you want to deprive yourself of a fun night? So please, folks, uh, check out Less Than Jake. Check out the podcast. Pick up the book Blast from the Past. It does have, like he said, Frankie Benelli picture in it. So that's 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 a price of admission right there.
0: Yeah, and if you if you want the book, you can pre order And There's a bunch of bundles with it. You go to ChrisMakesABook dot com.
1: Krista makes a book that is that is terrific, and 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 yeah, yeah. You see, you have one of these names where people all through your life made made these little jokes, like Mitch and the Ditch and the oh, yeah, God. It's okay. We will not escape it, so we must embrace it. Uh, there you go, as we say in. Uh, go That's ahead. it. That's uh, it. As you as we say in Montreal, uh, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure.
0: All right, Mitch. Take care. Thank you.
1: Cheers.